Good evening, everyone. This is Mark Rossetti, and welcome to the Wit and Whiskey cast. This is uh, episode number nine, in case you couldn't tell. It's a little Beatles reference for you. DJ, you didn't get that at all, did you? No, I'm not a Beatles fan, but we can move on. That's my co-host, DJ Gagnon. And this week, we are going to do the first in a series of episodes that's going to get uh, probably relatively heated. Well, as heated as I can get one-sided, I'm, I'm nursing a bit of uh, laryngitis here. But uh, we're going to do the first in a series of episodes on the video game console wars. And this first episode is one that I know is near and dear to our hearts. We are going to do the Sega Genesis versus the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Oh, boy. I'm excited. I'm very excited as well. But before we get into the nitty-gritty there, what, what have you been up to lately? What crevice of your house are you crawling around now? No more crevices, luckily. The attic is done. The library is done. It is glorious. It's very weird to have lived in this house for three years and just now be walking into that room and have it be the same temperature as the rest of the house. It's... Just been kind of relaxing a little bit. Went apple picking. Basically crossed all of the the autumn New Englander things off the list. Uh, we went apple picking. I, we got pumpkin spice lattes. We got cider donuts. I got some locally brewed hard cider. I had a good drink of that this weekend. I got a sugar pumpkin so I can start making pumpkin pies. You know, just Just all of the... The, the New England things that are kind of hard to do during a pandemic, we kind of just did it all in one weekend, and we masked up and hung out with some friends. So it was, it was pretty good. Uh, it was a lot of fun. How about you, man? As you notice, my voice is a bit weak this week. The uh, reason for that is I was actually contacted uh, not long after we recorded last week's show to go back to an old gig of mine. You know, I, I used to race for a number of years, as we discussed here. And then when I retired, I promoted races, but I also announced for about eh, three and a half, four years, something like that. And I haven't done that in a while, but uh, unfortunately, the chap who took over for me when I stopped announcing, he still races. He, he does the double like I, I did briefly. And he had a very nasty accident, and he is currently in ICU. So, you know, they were left without an announcer with a very big race coming up this weekend, and so they called me and asked me if I would pinch it. So I went down there on Saturday and basically screamed into a microphone for eight and a half hours, and now I'm quite hoarse. <laughs> so here we are, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, it was a nostalgia race, you know, a lot of older cars, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, m much more my era, much more my bag. And we got to have a wheel stand competition, and I got to, to flag start the, the wheel standers. So, you know, if you go online and you, you Google the jalopy drag days, you know, you go on YouTube and there's a video of my fat ass flag starting cars and them jump, basically jumping over my head. So it was, it was a great time, but I'm playing a little bit hurt today, so I do apologize for the condition of my voice, but it's an occupational hazard. Isn't the very purpose of a microphone so that you don't have to shout into it, Mark? Uh, by definition, yes. It is a voice amplification device. But you understand, you know, being a good announcer, and, and this is something we could do an episode on possibly, uh, being a good announcer is more than just relaying details. You also have to get the crowd into it. You have to hype up things that might ordinarily 
you know, not be excited. I mean, you know, it's like a little kid, you know, if a little kid runs into something and falls over, if you don't react at all, they don't react at all. And that's generally good. Whereas if you make a big deal out of it and say, oh, my God, you hurt yourself and blah, 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 they freak out. It's no different with any type of sporting event. If something goes on, you know, if, if you freak out and you get excited, generally the, the crowd gets excited, too. We had a much smaller crowd this year, obviously, due to COVID-19. You know, usually this race draws about 1,500 people or so. This year, I think we had about 350. We, we were pretty limited, obviously, to, to keep social distancing. But still, 350 people, if you do it right, you can get some noise out of them. And that was partly my job to try to get them to sound more like 1,500. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I mean, at the end of the day, I got a $100 bill for my troubles, and I went home. So, you know, <laughs> you, you can't really complain. That's fair. It sounds like we had pretty good weeks, but more importantly, it's the end of the week, beginning of a new one. What are you drinking? Well, I'm sure you'll all be shocked, shocked to know that due to my current condition, I'm currently drinking a hot toddy. <laughs> and, you know, the hot toddy is, you know, what we talk about here on the W&W as one of your more traditional whiskey drinks. And I suppose I should uh, make a point now to say that if you ever find yourself in Ireland, do not ever call it a hot toddy. You will be violently assaulted. It's a hot whiskey in Ireland. Woof. Uh, I don't know why, uh, but that's just a thing. So, you know, make note of it. Oftentimes, if you go on mixology sites and you look up a hot toddy in parentheses, it'll usually say hot whiskey dash Ireland. Um, but there's a few different ways to make it. Today, I have uh, used some Lipton black tea. I'm not a tea drinker, so go ahead and make fun of me for drinking Lipton. Tea is, is very weak, especially when you drink as much coffee as I drink. Lipton black tea is about the only thing I can drink that has any sort of kick to it. I use a few dabs of my buddy Gary Stavish's Just Bee Honey. He, he's a local businessman. He grows his own bees in his backyard and produces his own au natural honey. So I use some of that. Two slices of lemon and uh, a nice shot of bourbon. I usually make hot toddies with bourbon. I think they taste a little better than straight whiskey or, or with rye. Rye with the honey just it doesn't sit with me. Uh, so this week I'm continuing on the trend uh, with the larceny just you know, I've had it for the last couple of weeks for what we've been doing on the show, and I still have some left, so throw a shot of larceny in there with a little bit of honey, a little bit of lemon, and it's uh, it's pretty good. And as much as I hate drinking tea, as much of a coffee drinker as I am, in all my years of announcing, all my years of giving lectures and tours in my real job, the only thing really that soothes your throat when you just destroy your vocal cords is tea, weirdly enough. So... It's very medicinal. true. I, I got some trivia for you, Mark, because I didn't realize this. I'm starting to find out that maybe the rest of the world is not quite as obsessed with maple syrup as we are here in the Shire. But I, <laughs> I don't know if you knew this. The New England recipe for a hot toddy removes the tea and the honey and replaces it with maple syrup. Now... You know, I, I have indeed seen Super Troopers, but I didn't think you guys actually chugged maple syrup up there. I thought that was a gag for the movie purposes. Oh, no. A little bit of, of DJ backstory for everybody here. My great-grandfather was a maple sugar farmer, and he would bottle maple syrup in old glass Coke bottles. And when his grandkids came over, so my dad and his siblings, he would just uncap them and hand each of them a bottle of maple syrup. 
And that's just the thing in my family. I'm not sure that that's a New England thing, but I definitely remember being a little kid and having competitions with my cousins over who could drink a nip bottle of Vermont maple syrup quicker. Now, you know, if you saw a picture, if you had just listened to that last soundbite, we, we need to cut that out and use that as a drop. But if you would just listen to that last soundbite, and if you had seen pictures of the two of us, you would swear that he was the raging fat ass. Because <laughs> I've done a lot of uh, interesting things with food, if we're being brutally honest, but I have never even remotely attempted to down a bottle of maple syrup. I enjoy maple syrup on, on pancakes and on waffles, but I, I just, uh, as, as its own thing, I, I don't know. That, that's, that's a new one. I do super love the idea of putting tea in a hot toddy. I, I feel like that's not a recipe I, I grew up knowing about. You know, my dad was a big fan of it, and, you know, all, it gets cold up here in the Shire, so around, you know, trick-or-treat time, now that we're getting pretty close to Halloween at this point, one of our neighbors in our neighborhood would just have hot toddies ready for, the, for all the parents walking their kids around. The, the one problem with a hot toddy, at least I have, is, you know, since I, I so rarely drink tea... The few times that I'm actually legitimately ill and I go to make myself tea, it always tastes funny because there's no whiskey in it because I'm so used to having, <laughs> you know, a hot toddy that I was like, oh, yes, this is what this actually tastes like. Oh, okay. Uh, that's amazing. Let's uh, commit to I'm, I'm going to put up a blog post for this episode where I'll share a couple of different recipes for hot toddies. And listeners, you guys can kind of make the choice for yourselves. Try out a couple different recipes. Let us know what you think. Yes, by all means, do uh, do try a good hot toddy. It, 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 it's a nice drink. Groucho Marx apparently was very fond of them nice. back in the 40s from what I've read. So uh, what are you drinking this evening? I got inspired after editing our martial arts episode, and I went to the store, took a look at all of the Japanese whiskeys there, and uh, I recently got a cocktail box in that was themed this month around Japanese whiskey, so... I picked myself up a bottle of Suntory Toki whiskey, which apparently is a pretty common Japanese whiskey and an entry-level one. So I am both reviewing that and a cocktail called Miles from the Mainland from this cocktail box. It's uh, some, some of the Japanese whiskey, a dab of the subtropic syrup, which seems to be coconut and, f and kind of tropical fruit related some lemon juice and some Peychaud's bitters. And it's pretty good, shaken into a coupe glass. I'm going to try to avoid actually sharing the, the exact recipe to everyone just so we don't end up in weird copyright territory. But largely, the you know I, I've got a little glass of the whiskey sitting here by itself too, so I can review that for everybody. It's a really nice light color and not pairing it then any of the ingredients in the cocktail. It's quite fruity, it's quite herby, it's got some some apple and honey notes that, that I'm really enjoying. And it seems to be kind of a trend in the last few episodes. Every whiskey I've hit has had like a really intense pepper finish. But the nice part of this is it's got uh, a little bit of a sweeter fin finish than what I've been drinking recently, so. I definitely recommend it. Anybody who's kind of curious about Japanese whiskeys, Japanese scotches, Suntory is a really good way to kind of onboard. Uh, it's quite light in color, but that shouldn't terrify anybody away. But yeah, it's been really good. I'm ashamed to admit I have very little experience with Japanese whiskeys, and that's a uh, area that I really need to improve upon. So maybe this week when I go to the liquor store, I'll see what they have. 
although in Pennsylvania it's pretty slim pickings, but uh, he, perhaps you've inspired me here. Yeah, yeah, it's quite good. I, I'm, I'm pretty impressed by it. I did a little bit of research and chatting with some friends who are into Japanese whiskeys, and it seems like there are rules around what can be labeled a scotch. You know, we've all heard of the, uh, you know, it has to be made with uh, Scottish uh, mineral water, and there's a certain mash you have to use which I did not look up ahead of time, so my apologies. I don't remember what the, the exact mash is. And Japan is getting around all of that by actually shipping in Scottish spring water. So that's why they can call it Japanese scotch, is they're obeying that. all of the rules. I absolutely love that. As huge fans of everything that seems to come out of Japanese pop culture, Mark and I really appreciate just the the pure dedication that Japan has to doing certain amazing things. And so I just, the whole story around Japanese scotch, we could probably do a whole episode about it, to be honest. Well, they, you know, and this is, this is going to sound mean, but it's unintended to, but if there's a way around something, they're, they're brilliant. And, you know, uh, in the future, maybe for season two, I want to do an episode on the 24 hours at Le Mans. And in the late 90s, Toyota built a car they referred to as the GT1, and it exploited so many rules loopholes. The car was 100% completely legal, but it exploited so many gray areas in the rule book. The most famous one was the rules at the time stated that uh, cars in their class needed to have a trunk capable of holding a briefcase. And basically, the tech inspector would come with the briefcase, and you would have to pop open whatever the hell it was that you declared to be the trunk and he would see if it closed and on the briefcase and if it did you passed toyota was able to convince the aoc which is the sanctioning body that their fuel tank when empty was the trunk because <laughs> the rules merely spa stated you had to have a space capable of holding the briefcase and since you went through tech inspection, drained of fuel anyway, the fuel tank was capable of holding the briefcase. Thus, that was the trunk. Thus, it was legal. And they won. <laughs> they were correct in their assumption. That's amazing. So it's just, I, I love shit like that. That is just fantastic. That's so good, man. I, I love it. And I feel like that's a really great dovetail into our fantastic topic this week. Well, we are going to be talking about Japanese technology, aren't we? We are. Uh, I got to warn you, Mark. I, I did my prep for this. I, I knew that your console won the actual console war, so I'm planning on winning the episode. Yeah, um, you know, a uh, little bit of behind the curtain here, a little bit of breaking kayfabe. Uh, DJ and I normally fill out our fo formats in a Google Doc. With everything going on this week with TV and the renovations here to the house, and then this weekend with having to go and announce... Well, I did do some prep for this episode. I did do some research. I didn't have time to put my notes down on actual paper. So as we were booting up just before we went on air, I was looking at what DJ wrote in D Dear Lord Above. So uh, why don't I let you go first, and then we'll see if we even have time for me, <laughs> and then we'll go from there. I figured we could kind of go back and forth a little bit here, and we could start establishing our timelines and then get into some of the games that made the consoles awesome. Well, then I guess I have to go first, because the Genesis came out first. It's fine. It didn't have great years up until the Nintendo got released. So, you know, we could just, we could just oh, skip oh, that. Oh, is that, is, is that what you think? Because, <clears throat> hang on a second here. It, you know, 
was originally released in Japan, of course, and it was October 29th, 1988. October 29th is the old man's birthday, so it's kind of a fun fact. Very nice. It came out in North America about a year later. It was August 14th, 1989. And as you, you're correct in stating that they were kind of quiet years, because even though it was the superior system, it had a 16-bit processor versus an 8-bit processor, the original Nintendo NES was still dominating the market. However, many people, myself included, were late adopters of the platform. I didn't pick up mine until 1994, Christmas of of 93, early 94. But I just want to address one thing that you brought up there about how it didn't really explode until the SNES came out. I have a little stats here. Let me see if I can find where they were. Uh, Here we are. At the time that the SNES was released, the Genesis had a two-year lead, of course. It had a lower price point, and it had a larger game library. Now, you may say, well, of course, it has a larger game library. It's been out for 10 years. But it's just staggering. At the time of the SNES's release, there were 10 games on the Genesis for every single game on the SNES. I mean, quality over quantity there, bruh. I mean, we had Streets of Rage. Uh-huh. And we had Sonic. And we had Sonic 2. And we had Sonic Spinball. Sonic 3 didn't come out till after the SNES. You also had Sonic 3D Blast. No, that didn't come out till after the SNES, and we don't talk about that anyway. As we established <laughs> in episode 2, we don't talk about that. Of course, the thing I remember most growing up about the Genesis, besides Sonic in general, about, besides the franchise, was the advertising. Sega does what Nintendo don't. <laughs> Such a great commercial. I mean, it's so, so petty. It's so stupid. Uh, they also had blast processing. They claimed that the, the 16-bit processor, the chip in, in the Genesis, did something called blast processing. They never explained what it was. I, I never knew what it was. It wasn't until in college that I finally looked up what it was. It didn't do a damn thing. It was an obscure and mostly unused bit of code in the back of the chip. It pretty much was like the expansion pack for the N64. It was there, but nobody ever used it. But, you know, they hyped it up. Yeah, we have blast processing. What do they have? They don't have blast processing. Well, no, no, they don't. Okay, all right. So, that you know, that's what I, uh, I remember in the run. Uh, by 1992, you know, there are numbers around saying that it would sell by, it had sold about 6 million consoles. That's actually not true. It had sold about 4.5 million by 1992. And, of course, you know, uh, these numbers don't sound impressive at all today. You know, when you look at the Playstations and the Wiis and the Switches selling nine figures worth of consoles. But we are still less than ten years removed from the great video game crash, which is another thing we're going to have to do an episode on at some point. We should. People never thought that video games in general, but especially home video games, the the PC was always going to have a market. But home consoles, people thought it was dead. It was just written off. And justifiably so for a long time. So, you know, to have four and a half million, to have six million, these numbers were staggering in the early 90s. Remember, there was a recession in the early 90s. Cost Bush the first his presidency. Mm. So to sell the, this many units in the time of a recession was impressive. All right. So now now go ahead. Now you jump in and then, we'll, then I'll jump back on the timeline. All right. So... Uh, the the SNES, the SNES, the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, was the follow-up 
to the original NES, the Nintendo Entertainment System, also known as the Famicom in Japan. So we get the Super Famicom as the SNES in Japan, released in 1990. I actually did look it up, and it was late 1990. So we're talking like over a year after the Genesis made it to the U.S. Over two years, right? It was it was just about two years. Just about two years. It launched in the U.S. in 1991 rebranded the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. And point in my favor, good sir, it launched with two games in Japan, five games in the U.S. One of those games is Super Mario World. Do you know what the second one it launched with in Japan was? One of the Final Fantasies. No. F-Zero. I'm ashamed I didn't know that. Mm Mm-hmm. Me too. I won't hold it over your head too, too much. Uh, so when it launched in the United States, we got Super Mario World, we got F-Zero, and we also got Pilot Wings, SimCity, and Gradius. Uh, okay. I mean, intro of the Pilot Wings franchise, that's pretty good. But really, for the Super Nintendo... launch lineup, actually. I, I mean, it's a great launch lineup, right? Like, five games. I had two of them. But really, what started to... I mean, ultimately, we know the Sega Genesis kind of edged out Nintendo in the U.S., but we did start to win the console war in 1992 with the port of Street Fighter II from the arcade. Yes, which is ironic because it was another fighting game that's often held up as the reason why the Genesis was able to hold its edge. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. I I remember growing up in the 90s and all of the advertisements, all of the general personas. I mean, Nintendo has never been a console that touted itself as hardcore, blazing edge. It was never Nintendo's shtick. I mean, we're here talking about the early 90s, and, I mean, Nintendo pushed with Street Fighter, whereas we had, like, what, Killer Instinct and Mortal Kombat on on, uh, Sega? Well, if you remember, Mortal Kombat, the original, did actually come out on the Super Nintendo. Oh, I didn't remember that. But it was heavily, heavily censored. Uh, The blood was changed in color uh, from red to gray, and in the instruction manual it was called sweat. (laughs) Uh, All the fatalities were changed, some some more than others. Sonya's remained pretty much what it was, and I think it was Liu Kang's was pretty much unchanged. But for the most part, the fatalities were changed. And, you know, that really drove people, uh, that's cited as one of the reasons to drive people away. And that really kicked off one of the, you know, biggest battles, because, of course, you had Sega versus Nintendo in the stores. You had Sega versus Nintendo in marketing and in commercials. You famously had Sega versus Nintendo on the playgrounds. Oh, of course. But the one that uh, only now, recently, you know, 30 years later historians are starting to write about is the battle they had in Congress. Oh, yes. I did read about this. Yes, because at this time you had games like Mortal Kombat. You had games like Killer Instinct. You had games like Doom, the original Doom. And then a little bit later on for the Sega CD, which we'll talk about briefly, uh, you had games like Night Trap. And... So Congress actually held hearings. And I can remember being a little kid. These took place during the summer. And I can remember being a little kid and watching these on TV. And they're talking about these games, and they're showing footage of these games. 
And uh, Howard Lincoln, who was uh, Nintendo, well, he was Nintendo's lawyer, but he was like their vice president or something at the time. I forget his exact title. He was just going off, just, you know, fighting tooth and nail and yelling and screaming. And it was very good TV because at the time, Congress was threatening basically to take government control of the video game industry. And they said, you need to, you know, clean up your shit or we're going to clean it up for you. So Sega famously got back at Howard Lincoln by having their lawyer hold up the super scope and say, you know, at least we don't sell a bazooka for our system like you guys do, which was a pretty low blow, I thought. But Sega came out with their first rating system. They had a rating system before the ESRB. Yes. And so Sega came up with their own, and then all of the companies, Sega, Nintendo, Atari, NEC, I think Commodore was still around at the time, they all got together and they formed the ESRB, the Entertainment Software Ratings Board, which still has the software ratings that we have today. And basically the industry went back to Congress, I think it was a year later, 18 months later, and said, look, this is what we have now, we're self-policing. And they said, all right, we're going to keep an eye on you. And thankfully, 30 years later, that's been good enough still. That's amazing. I had to look it up, and I'm still working on finding the publication date, 1993. So this this all kind of like culminates in some really interesting societal stuff that we may need to spin off into its own episode. But there was a novel that came out in 1993. It was by Joseph Locke, and it was called Game Over. And it was kind of at the height of... I have that book. Great I do book. too. I, I actually bought a copy off eBay a few years ago because I didn't realize like how well it expressed all, the debate in modern culture about video games. Because back in the 90s, we weren't quite as inured to violence as we are today. And anytime there was even sweat in a fighting game, parents would storm stores and riot and and picket and there was you know religious groups against it and th- this novel is a really interesting cross section of what was happening back in the 90s because the whole concept of this novel and it to be fair it was a kids book it's terrifying that this is a kids book mark but it was about the devil literally owning an arcade that was mind washing kids into committing murder you know, it's, it was very believable. I seem to recall a few years later, like 96, there was a, a similar episode of The X-Files about a possessed arcade. Yeah, it was a huge thing. I mean, we don't really think about it today. Like, you know, we've got elementary school and, and, and middle school kids playing Fortnite. Like, I remember having to fight to get my first shooter, and I think it was until the N64 when GoldenEye came out that I was finally able to play one. See, I had your stereotypical American upbringing. Uh, Violence is perfectly okay. You just can't see any tits. (laughs) Yeah, that too. So I was allowed Doom, but I had to get the heavily censored version of Duke Nukem. Yeah, that didn't, didn't allow any of the strippers, and you know, then then there was that. I I googled it very quickly while you were talking there. I, I was slightly wrong. It was during Christmas vacation. It was December of 1993. Was the first set of hearings, and it was the United States Senate Committee on Governmental Affairs and the Judiciary. 
and uh, they subpoenaed just a who's who of people. Parker Page from uh, the Children's Television Resource Center, Professor Eugene Pavenzo from the University of Miami, Robert Chase of the National Education Association, Marilyn Draws of the National Coalition on TV Violence, Howard Lincoln, who I mentioned, who at the time was executive vice president of Nintendo in America, Bill White, who was executive vice president of Sega in America, Eileen Rosenthal, who was representative of the Software Publishers Association, uh, which was sort of the industry rep at the time, Don Wiener, who was rep from the Video Software Dealers Association, which doesn't exist anymore, and then Craig Johnson, who was the president of the Amusement and Music Operators Association. So basically, they got all the heads of the industry together and just said, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) And I was looking for some of the speech that Lincoln, Howard Lincoln gave. I, I have the book. I forget who wrote it, but it's literally just titled The Complete History of Video Games. It's about a 600 page tome. And there's a whole chapter on the congressional hearings, and they basically reprint one of Lincoln's diatribes word for word. And I was hoping I could find that here, but I can't. But if, if you do some Googling on your own, just type in video game congressional hearings. You get oodles of information about it. It was some wild stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, we were obsessed as a culture with trying to determine what the fuck was happening with video games and how impressionable it was. There was a lot of conversation in the the Congress and, and all of these hearings about, around video games using the same tactics as were being used to train soldiers. I, I mean, it was a, an absolutely fascinating part of history that seems kind of ridiculous when you look at what we play for video games today and don't even think about it. Well, you, you, that, you're absolutely right. But the other thing, too, is, and this is going to be shocking for some of our younger listeners, in the time before the Internet existed, rumors ran wild. I can remember, do you remember the arcade game Battlezone? Pretty sure it was called Battlezone. Is this the one? It's like vector graphics and tanks, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember the rumor of Battle... There, there, was, there were two big rumors with Battlezone. I don't. I was... I had no friends. Nobody told me anything. <laughs> well, the, the mo- more innocent one was, you know, if you remember in the background, there was that vector-designed mountain that was supposedly a volcano. The, the more innocent rumor was if you drove far enough away, you could climb into the crater of the volcano and there was something secret hidden inside of it. I don't remember exactly what was supposed to be in there. But of course, you know, it was just a background. No matter how far you drove, you'd run out of time long before you ever got to the mountain. But the more sinister, and I use that term loosely, the more sinister rumor was that there was an enhanced version of Battlezone that was made for the Pentagon. And that they actually were oh, using yes. it to train tank pilots. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, at the time... If you go online and Google Battlezone, you, there's YouTube videos of it. It's the most hilariously bad. It looks like an Etch-a-Sketch. But at the time, it was so far advanced that it was believable. Well, yeah, of, of course this is what our military is using to train. What, what, what else would they use? So, you know, before the Internet, you had these wild rumors. And so you have stuff like that flying around. And then you have games that are far more violent than anything we've ever seen. I mean... It, you look at the first Mortal Kombat now, it's cartoonishly over the top, but there had never been a game with 
really blood, period. Very little, if any. And now you have a game where you can rip out people's spines and you can impale them on spikes. And remember, the first three, three Mortal Kombat games all used motion capture actors. They were scans of people. Mm -hmm. It was basically like a video laid over the screen. So you were basically decapitating people on screen. You know, when you went to go get a pizza, you put 50 cents in, you could have all kinds of fun because uh, they all started in the arcades beforehand. And so it was, it was a messed up time, man. Yeah, oh, I mean, the 90s were a crazy time just in every, every, every facet. I mean, when we... We get to June and we talk about pride. I'll, I'll bring up some of the the concepts of like holy crap, you know the the term gay on the playground and the the R word on the playground. Like the, there were things that we said and did in the '90s that it did not occur to anybody was wrong. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> I mean that's you know, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Okay, so to get back on topic, get back on topic. That was also one of the reasons just in general, why uh, the Genesis was considered the more popular system. Well, it was a more popular system, but one of the reasons for that was because it did have less stringent censorship rules and less stringent publishing rules. They charged a little bit more of a royalty fee. It was something between 10 and $15 a cartridge, depending on you know who you were, like what company you were and what your contract was. So they charged a little bit more than Nintendo did, but they were a little bit more loose with violence. They were a little bit more loose with adult themes. You know, Streets of Rage, you're fighting drug dealers and there's prostitutes with whips and that sort of thing. Oh, so they, yeah. got a, they got away with a little bit more. But the problem was their early start actually hurt them because really by the time the Super Nintendo came out, the Genesis was getting pretty long in the tooth. It actually was on his third iteration, you know, the classic Genesis that we look at, the really sleek, perfectly square one with only two buttons. That was like the third version of the Genesis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when the, I finally got a Genesis growing up, I, I, I already had the three buttons. Yeah. You know, because first you had the one with all the goofy switches on it. Then you had the other oblong one that had slightly less goofy switches on it. And then you had the three button job. And the Sega Saturn the single most underrated system of all time, in my opinion, uh, was still a little ways away. So Sega started to get desperate. <laughs> you know, you had the uh, Sega CD, which originally kind of launched even before this. And, you know, you had to basically plug your Genesis into this base. And, you know, you needed the, the Genesis and you needed the Sega CD. And really, the only two games anybody ever remembers from the Sega CD is Sonic CD, and for good reason, and then Night Trap. Fair. And I don't, I never, ever, ever even saw a Sega CD. I, I don't know anybody that ever had it. I never got a chance to play it. I don't think I even knew it existed until years later, and I thought it was a completely separate console. Well, funny enough, there was a prototype, and let me Google what the exact name was because I'm going to get it wrong, but Sega was actually going through a phase where they were naming all their consoles after planets. So you had the Sega Saturn, you had, um, and then you had the Sega Uranus. 
there also was the Sega Pluto. Now, I believe the Uranus was the one that was supposed to be, I believe that was the one that was supposed to be the standalone Sega CD. And then there was the other one, which the Sega Pluto was the one that was a Genesis and a 32X molded into one console. I could have those flipped. One might be one, one might be the other. But they actually built prototypes of these. You had the, the, the 32X, the Sega CD, the Genesis, the Uranus, and the Pluto. And they were just all sucking resources away from everything. Huh. Uh, so by the time that it was time for the Saturn to come out, your poor Genesis was just, you know, you had a Genesis with a Sega CD stuck in the bottom and hanging off the side. You had the 32X rammed down the cartridge port. <laughs> if you had Sonic and Knuckles... You also had a game stuck inside of another game, stuck inside of a system, stuck inside of a system. <laughs> so, you know, it was pretty ridiculous. And by that point, those of us that had a Genesis, we knew we, we lost. It was funny because you look at it now, you look at the numbers, we didn't. But as kids, we're like, yeah, it's over. Um, and that was a shame because that really hurt, amongst other reasons, or numerous reasons why the Saturn failed. But the bad aftertaste of the last days of the Genesis just hanging on. Yeah, um, it, it was it was rough. And I feel like that is a, a thing that has kind of... It, it's it's kind of come into, like, modern-day console wars, which we will defo talk about. Because if you consider, like, modern-day ones, right, the current console war that we're, we're actively seeing at the time of this recording is the... The console war of the Switch, the PS4, and the Xbox X, I believe. And, I mean, Nintendo Nintendo knew from the beginning that it wasn't going to compete with blindingly flashy things that were coming out, right? Like, Nintendo today does not really try to compete with uh, PlayStation and Xbox on the basis of specs, of you know how how big of a game it can handle of graphics a frame rate but nintendo solidly handles the transition into the next console war with a bit of grace and aplomb whereas i feel like every console war we get to the next iteration and sony and microsoft hit the market hard and then six months later those of us who are really ready for a a bug-free console get on board because there are just bug after bug after bug and terrible marketing, terrible marketing. Whereas when the Switch launched, I think there was one major bug, maybe two. Yeah, I, I think there's something to be said for that. And I mean, I think with the exception of that as a console maker, they failed and now they're not making consoles anymore. Sega is a lot like uh, Microsoft currently with the Xbox. I mean, you, you, you're seeing history kind of repeat itself. Like, just look at some of these numbers here. Uh, over the life of this, this system, and the Genesis lasted uh, basically until June of 1997. I mean, think about that. It, it came out in 1989, and most of the way through 1997, that was still their system, which that's just unreal. Yeah. But over the life of the system, it sold roughly three, three, 30.8 million units. Very impressive. But of those, only 3.6 were in Japan. And you often hear about the Xbox, just like the original Xbox, the numbers in Japan were like ridiculous. Like they pulled, Microsoft pulled out of the market, I forget how long after. It was almost, it was some stupidly uh, 
early time after they pulled the original Xbox out. And, I mean, even now, I mean, the, the current Xbox hasn't sold well across the board, but it's sold especially terrible in Japan. Sega's, uh, Sega was originally an American company with a Japanese name that then grew into Sega Japan. You know, Microsoft's an American company trying to make it over there. So the parallels are kind of interesting. Yeah. But of course, Microsoft's still here. I mean, they're, they're never going to go bankrupt. They, can, they, they just use the Xbox as a write-off, and who could blame them? It's kind of interesting when you look at it. History is kind of repeating itself. Uh, we'll have to put this up on the website. I found a picture of the Genesis with the Sega CD and the 32X all put together. And uh, dear Lord, I think the table that my laptop's sitting on crumpled just looking at the picture because it just <laughs> looks it looks heavy. Yeah, it, it was it was insane. So let's I, I'm gonna get back to Super Nintendo because I contest that despite the fact that Genesis did better by numbers, that the Super Nintendo ultimately won the console war. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, in hindsight, no, it didn't. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, as someone that that lived through it, you know, you have to understand. I had an Atari growing up, then I had an original Nintendo. I switched to the Genesis because of Sonic mostly, and then Mortal Kombat, and was like, man, did I screw up? And then I wanted a Genesis. My uncle had one, and pretty much as soon as I got to play it, they pulled support. <laughs> And he's just like, yeah, here, you can have it. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, cool. Um, I loved it, but it was like, yeah, there's nothing for it. Uh, so then I switched back with the N64, and I never really looked back. So, you know, as someone who lived through it, we all thought you guys kicked ass. But looking at it purely from a black and white perspective, eh. Oh, sure. But the contention that I'm making here is that Nintendo's staying power that was established during this the SNES era is what ultimately allowed it to pull ahead. We know that there are some really amazing games on both sides. I, I want to get into that too. But Genesis kind of died by 97. And it died by 97 because that's when, you know, N64 hit market in 96. PlayStation was around there too. We were starting to see the the birth of the polygonal 64-bit systems. And nobody really wanted to keep playing with Genesis and SNES at the time. But the SNES held on until 1999. Three that's years, terrifying. Yeah, it's absolutely it, terrifying. It is. Three years after the N64 got released and two years after the last first-party game that Nintendo produced for the SNES, which was Kirby's Dream Land 3, Nintendo sees production. And that's what Nintendo tends to do, right? They, they leapfrog their systems. You know, the Switch was out for a good year before they started killing the, the 3DS's virtual store and support for it. I think it's I think it's actually been a couple of years now and just recently Nintendo announced that they were going to stop production on the 3DS. So, you know, we we kind of see this thing throughout history of Nintendo leapfrogging systems into production that their next system picks up the slack and then they just quietly let the other one die off to the side. You know, you talked a little bit about Sega CD, Sega Saturn, all of those, you know, crazy th peripherals that came out Nintendo released a couple of different versions of, of the Super Nintendo. I got one in 94, 95 time frame. Uh, I, I was pretty young, and my parents weren't sure about an in-house video game system, but they relented when I was in second grade. And in 97, to coincide with the launch of 
Super Mario World 2, Yoshi's Island, they released what was called the new style Super Nintendo. And I don't think I've ever actually seen one. It looks completely different. It's like it's like a, a PS Slim. You know, it's, it's smaller, it's different colors. We end up with, like, weird peripheral stuff in the 90s. We were kind of obsessed with accessorizing our consoles. I got a Genesis, like, late in the 90s, and I ended up immediately going out and getting, like, an arcade pad for it. And those were just things that existed. Super Nintendo had the Super Scope, the SNES Mouse, both came out in 92. And then one of the most successful peripherals I would say that's ever existed and has kind of carried its way through a couple of different consoles was the Super Game Boy. The idea of being able to play this Game Boy... Game Boy games on your big system on the TV was was kind of novel and ended up in a weird way crazily increasing the number of games you could play in the Super Nintendo at the time. Yeah, that always... It struck me as interesting because uh, now, admittedly, I, I've never been much of a portable game fan. I had a Game Gear. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> of course you did. I always wanted a Nomad. I, I never was able to, my, I could never talk my mother into dropping the $300 in 1994 for a Nomad. Uh, if anybody listening has a Nomad, email us if you want to sell it. I, I would love to get one. <laughs> but to me, the, the Super Game Boy and then the one that they released for the GameCube, it always struck me as odd because... The point of a Game Boy is to take it with you. So why are you going to play it at home? <laughs> I mean, I, I, for the, I, the same reason that we would pass the controller around at home while playing like Lion King or Aladdin, right? Like it's a one player game, but it's still fun to play with people. Oh, you people that weren't only children. <laughs> <laughs> Those of us who had to learn how to share, Mark. You know, you're touching on all the variants and you're touching on all the peripherals, but you haven't as of yet mentioned... Arguably the single most important one. Oh? The one that really set the course. Of course, we didn't know it at the time. But the one that really set the course for where we are today with video game. And what would you say that is, Mark? can't believe you're not picking this up. The Nintendo PlayStation. What is the Nintendo PlayStation? Oh, my dear sweet boy. Oh. <sighs> Super Nintendo... There was a Super Nintendo disc variant that was co-designed by Sony. Nintendo and Sony were going to release another system, the Nintendo PlayStation. How did I not know about this? I don't know. <laughs> In some stupid amount of time after it was announced, I mean, like, we're talking literal weeks here. I think it was six weeks, eight weeks, the partnership dissolved. They built a prototype, which just recently uh, was auctioned off for, I forget how many million. I just saw it, $300,000. Okay, $300,000. They, uh, they built the prototype. I remember it was all the magazines. I, had, I was getting a subscription to GamePro at the time. It was in GamePro. It was in Electronic Gaming Monthly. It was in all the magazines. And something like six, eight weeks later, the partnership dissolved because Nintendo wasn't happy with all the money and, you know, basically how much money Nintendo was going to get out of the deal. And Nintendo basically was like, well, you know, you're Sony, you make Walkmans, we're Nintendo, we make video games, you should be happy we're even giving you any money. And so the partnership dissolved and Sony said, we're going to make our own video game system with Blackjack and Hookers. And out came the original PlayStation. Oh, my uh, God. Yeah. Wow, I am learning so much. 
Yeah, because they it was only like two or three years later that they re- launched the original PlayStation. Correct. That was that was a wild time. I, I was just starting to get old enough to really be aware of things at that time, and it was like, huh, okay, you know, the the Nintendo PlayStation isn't anymore, but hey, you know, they're gonna do Super Mario sixty four, and you know, holy shit, look at that, and there's you know three parts of the controller. I oh wait, oh Sony's back. Oh PlayStation, that sounds familiar. <laughs> Hang on a minute. See, I. I went at it as a, you know, with a completely different tact because I, I was a pure Nintendo boy all the way up until I bought like a late era PS3, maybe an Xbox 360. I might have had a, a 360 earlier, but it, like I, all the way up through GameCube, nothing but Nintendo, and I came pretty late to the Super Nintendo. Like it was within a few years that the N64 dropped, and that was the first console that I had at launch. So I missed all of this. I did not know that the PlayStation was birthed from like a breakdown between Nintendo and Sony. Yeah, it's one of the greatest what if stories for video gaming. I mean, that and the fact that in the 80s, Nintendo of Japan actually offered the Famicom to Atari. They wanted to license it. Oh, wow. And Atari's like, no, that's not going to work. And here we are. All right, so, I, I mean, we're running a little long in the tooth, but we got to talk about some of the heavy-hitting games that kind of came in and made the consoles what they were, right? Because there were hundreds of games for these consoles. Literally. Like, everybody and their Uncle Soda brand had a game on these two consoles. Literally. Yeah, <laughs> the games that made the, the Super Nintendo, right? We've talked about... You know, I mentioned Super Mario World. I I mentioned Super Mario World 2. I mentioned a little bit of Kirby. But Donkey Kong, one of the first, like, 3D-esque games, it it was made to... The whole franchise was made to compete with 32-bit era game consoles. And then we... You know, I mentioned Super Street Fighter 2, but Street Fighter 2 had a bunch of iterations. I mean, how many of us played Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo Alpha uh, back in the day? God bless you. Yeah, right? But then we've got games uh, like the whole Mega Man X series, Star Fox, which was one of the first games to combine like three-dimensional vector and and like turbo graphics stuff. Like it was crazy. Yeah, we've got Legend of Zelda Link to the Past. You know, Hailed is one of the best Zelda games of all times. We got Super Metroid. One of the games I got with my console, Super Mario All-Stars. We got Mario RPG, which kind of set a standard for every Mario game that wasn't a platformer in the future. We had some rarities like Earthbound and Final Fantasies, what we now know them as 4 and 6. So some just treasure troves like Chrono Trigger. Doom came to the Super Nintendo but didn't come to the Genesis. It came to the 32X. It but did. The, I, I will say, full disclosure, I've played basically every version of Doom there is, and there's a million of them. The Super Nintendo one is fantastic. Right. It's it's just so good. If, if Even if you have it on emulator, I mean, especially if you have the original game and you can get that bright red cartridge, uh, definitely do it. But even if you have an emulator, uh, play the SNES version of Doom. It's It's really good. So good. And who doesn't remember playing TMNT Turtles in Time? Yeah. Amazing game. And then we had, like, 
like Aladdin, DuckTales, Lion King, like every major franchise had their own video game. I, I remember playing a Tiny Toons game that my brother and I couldn't put down. Oh, yeah. I, oh, I, I had that. Ultimately, I think the best franchise game that has ever been made, and I will fight anybody about this, was Cool Spot. <laughs> Do you remember Cool Spot? I remember Cool Spot, although I preferred the Spot fruit snacks that actually were kind of fizzy and tasted like soda. Yeah, they were amazing. Yes, they were. But yeah, no, Cool Spot, I mean, this is kind of a weirdly foreign thing to people playing video games today. And it's, looking back, it's a little dystopic, if you think about it. Like, uh, like franchises and companies that had nothing to do with video games getting into the video game scene to sell their product. And Cool Spot was 7-Up's attempt to become relevant. And they made, like, they had this little spot mascot who shot bubbles and fought rats. And, and it was, like, a weirdly good game, but was really just there to make you buy 7-Up. Yeah. You had the Noid game as well. Noid? The Noid from Domino's. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, he had his own game as well. And then we had some, uh, uh, the, uh, the last game I'll mention. <laughs> Did you ever play Booger Man? <laughs> I'm sad to say I have. <laughs> Booger just... Man. Now, to be fair, this is a good pickup for you because Booger Man was on both SNES and Genesis. It was. You had a lot of crossover. You know, a lot of those games you mentioned uh, got ports to the Genesis, but the Genesis had a lot of fun exclusives. It had a lot of fun things. Um, and in a way, you know, if, if you just pull up a list, if you just look at the list, it's very Eastern. You know, it, it, it has a lot of Japanese influence for it. You know, you have Mega Man games. You have Bomberman games. You have Virtual Fighter. You have a lot of RPGs. Golden Axe, Light Crusader, the Fantasy Star series. Of course, you have all the Sonic games that we already talked about. You have Earthworm Jim. You have the original mascot for Sega, Alex Kidd. Ugh. You have the Tetris knockoff columns and then super columns. And then, of course, Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine. <laughs> Such an underrated great game. It's so good. I, I adore the Mean Bean Machine. Another game that uh, is no surprise you will, all, you will be know I love, Road Rash 2. Ah, yes. Let's race motorcycles and hit people over the head with pull cues and chains. Oh, so love good. It. Vector Man. Fun platforming game. Vector Man 2, you know, you're a little robot and you have to fight a guy who's a robot with a head that's a nuclear warhead. Good family stuff. Yeah. Of course, you know, you had the Mortal Kombat games. You had some early sports games. John Madden Football originally came out uh, on the Genesis. First console port was the Genesis, which, you know, I'm not really a Madden guy, but that was a pretty big deal and really set the stage for gaming today as it is. I had one of the early FIFAs, Road to the World Cup 96, which was a lot of fun because if you were going to get a red card and get thrown out of the game, you still had control over your little guy that was going to get the red card, so you could just keep running away from the ref. And if he couldn't catch you, he couldn't throw you out of the game. Amazing. So, you know, just shit like that. But it was, it was a lot of fun. Like you said, there was a lot of peripherals. There's, you know, the, the running pad. There's the, the arcade pad. The six-button controller, which later became the official controller. Sega put out a few official controllers that had, oh, what's the term, where you use a switch and it basically simulates you mashing the button. Yes. 
you know what I'm talking about. They, they talk about it in Metal Gear Solid. But basically, they, they put out a few first-party controllers that had all these switches that were tied to oh, each button. Yeah, I had one on an arcade stick, and you could just hold it down and just rapid-fire the button. It was great. Yeah, I, I had a few that they were just toggle switches, and you would just throw them off and on. For licensed games, you know, you had Aladdin. I really enjoyed Desert Demolition, which was a Roadrunner and Coyote game. Oh, nice. Uh, and you could play as either the Roadrunner or the Coyote. That was one of the first games that I had for the Genesis. So Ghostbusters, they actually had a decent version of the Ghostbusters game that released it for the Genesis. It's very rare. It actually has Winston in it. It was the only early Ghostbusters game to have all four of them in it. So, you know, there, there's quite a few good games. <laughs> That's <laughs> fair. I, you know, Mark, I would love to keep talking about this, but I think we might be at time this week. And I don't know how much longer my voice is going to last. I know, right? So, listeners, let let us know what you think. I am still firmly in the Super Nintendo camp, but I had some favorite games from the Genesis era as well. You know, we we don't really... We're probably not going to get too, too divisive until we get to, like, you know, GameCube era. (laughs) I will say this. You know, even though I did not get a Super Nintendo really until college, one of my own... Super Nintendo wins for one reason and one reason alone, and you mentioned it earlier, F-Zero. Yep. I remember when the original Xbox first came out, I saw a shirt in FYE that said, the number one reason to not own an Xbox, the only good game is Halo. Then (laughs) on the other side of the shirt, it said, the number one reason to own an Xbox, the only good game is Halo. (laughs) (laughs) You could replace that with F-Zero, and it's still true. (laughs) Amazing. Well, thank you, dear listeners, for for joining us this week. We're running a little long in the tooth, but you know, console wars are a lot of fun. Mark and I have had this debate many, many times. We'll have it many more. But thank you so much for listening. If you get a chance, feel free to uh, like our podcast. Uh, You can give us a rating out on the Apple Podcast app or uh, up in iTunes. That really helps us out. I think I might be dating myself by calling it iTunes. It's probably something else by now, but... And you can feel free to subscribe. We are up on Spotify. We're up on Apple Podcasts. Mark got us up on Podbean. Most of the episodes, I'm still fighting through a few upload issues. They only want you to do so many. So our first five, I believe it is right now, are up on Podbean. Amazing. More to come. Yeah. And of course, we're, we're up at our website where we like to do occasional blog posts, post some drink recipes that we're doing. And uh, the website is thewitandwhiskeycast.com. You can follow us on social media, both on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, Mark and I kind of split duties. I take the gram, he takes the book. And uh, both of those are at the Wit and Whiskey cast. Again, we we remind people that Wit has no H and Whiskey has an E. Feel free to follow us. Feel free to send us any questions you, you would like us to answer feel free to weigh in on the console wars and feel free to send us any topics or or recommend any whiskeys that you'd like us to try we're always willing to try something uh mark i'm I'm looking to delve into the well in the next episode or two so that should be fun yeah i already had my first well so you it's your turn next yeah yeah so i'm looking for something from the well everybody and uh, of course, we want to thank Nuno Henry Silva for our intro and outro music. He is he's the man. He's amazing. We love you, man. And we're going to send you all to his SoundCloud in our show notes. Go check it out. He's got a new album up there in the 
last few months. So it's pretty good. Go check it out. Mark, what are we going to do next week? I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad we didn't have a rant this week. There's no boob whiskey to complain about. Yeah. What are we thinking here? Where's, where's my list here? Hang on. Well, is it your turn to pick or is it my turn to pick? I don't even remember who picked this week. Uh, I don't either. Why don't you give me three? I feel like that, that, that feels right. Sure, we'll go with that. Let's do... Start with Legos. Maybe cigars. And for the third one... Well, we were talking about it earlier today. For the third one, do we want to do toxic fandoms? Ooh. Ooh, I think toxic fandoms would be fascinating. I think we could make that interesting because I think we've both had a, some experiences with some toxic fandoms. Yes, yeah, we, this has been a topic that comes up quite often about, you know, the, the struggle in, in modern, any, you know, any fandoms, but really, you know, we specifically come at it from, like, nerddoms, and what, you know, what, what is a good fandom, what is a bad fandom, how do you engage with fellow fans in a meaningful way, so that would be really, that would be really interesting. All right, so it's... Season one, episode ten, next week is going to be toxic fandoms and whiskey. Oh, good. I'm going to have to. I, I think I'm going to have to dip into the well for episode ten. That that feels right to me for toxic fandoms. And I'm going to tell y'all listeners now: bring some pretzels because it's going to get salty. <laughs> yeah, we're 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 a little bitter about some of our fandoms. No, we love our fans. Yeah, no, you guys are awesome. But yeah, uh, look forward to that next week. And uh, until then, cheers. Salute.